in our practice there is a, a combination of uh, putting in effort, rising up, going past our comfort zones and, uh, and letting go into a, a larger holding. So when we spoke um, at the beginning of the retreat about bowing and each morning we're taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha. So that's like the, the larger holding for us. And uh, also this retreat container, the schedule, the, you know, the not super early, but perhaps for you early morning meditation and uh, the renunciation of not having dinner and the, the, d the daily schedule, morning and afternoon practice periods and evening practice periods. You know, these, this, this container is part of what helps to push us past our comfort zones, our, um, our normal, what we think we are and what we think we can do. So it's very important to keep this, you know, to, to keep this uh, schedule. To, to uh, it's not just to keep the schedule, but to use this schedule to go past the ideas of no, I really can't get up at this time, or no, I really need to have a little rest now, or I'm just feeling too agitated, you know. So these are the con the retreat container provides, in a way, a mirror for the mind. So it's not a, an optional container, it's like we've all come onto the retreat and so six o'clock we need to be here and or earlier is great also to, to really be here and to have that time of stilling and settling. And it may not feel like stilling, stilling and settling, it may feel restless and agitated or sleepy, but we just, we just show up. And uh, that rising up to the container in this way has its own, it does its own work on us. So there's the, you know, the applying the mind to the, to the meditation object, which is very important, the, the arousing mindfulness in everything we do, if possible. And, you know, our tendency is well, it's easier to be mindful of the things that are more pleasant, the things that are more comfortable. And then when things are unpleasant or uncomfortable or difficult, it's harder to be mindful of those. So if we don't, if we just let our, you know, if we just let the mind follow its own patterns, it will find a way of avoiding the uncomfortable and going towards the comfortable. That's kind of what minds do. <laughs> uh, the ego does that. So this is uh, an opportunity to explore, you know, where's the resistance, where's the fear, where's the aversion, where's the dullness, whatever, and to explore, you know, that, what, what limits us, what, what, in what way are we being pushed around by our feelings, because that's kind of what happens. Nice feeling, we're pushed towards it, and unpleasant feeling, we're pushed away from it. And so we get pushed around by, by feelings and moods, and this, this structure here that we've all entered into provides an opportunity to see that more clearly, but only if we use it. So if we don't, uh, if we uh, 
pick and choose, we, we don't really learn very, very much in this context. This morning I wanted to bring in uh, Bhikkhuni Dhammadina. Um, so in the, she's one of the Bhikkhunis who's mentioned in our um, Arahant Bhikkhuni chant, the 13 foremost Arahant Bhikkhunis. And the Buddha praised her for being the most excellent of Dhamma teachers. So she was, uh, so we had Patachara yesterday who had a, a large following, and then today's Dhammadina who was the most excellent of Dhamma teachers. We actually only have one of her teachings in the, in the suttas that's been passed down, because mainly uh, the suttas are the Buddha's teachings. But we, there is one, one uh, of her teachings which is a very profound teaching uh, in the Majjhima Nikaya. And uh, Dhammadina was a, she's from a middle class family, a merchant, married a merchant and was a happily married woman and uh, her husband Visaka went off and listened to the Buddha's teachings. So they were living in an area where the Buddha was wandering and teaching. And uh, as her husband was listening to this teaching, he gained the third level of awakening. <laughs> Must have been awesome to be around at the Buddha's time. <laughs> um, so he's listening to this teaching and then he becomes an anagami, which is someone who's complete, completely free from any greed or aversion. No greed, no hatred, not a trace left. It's very beautiful. And I just want to, I want to pause with that a minute because just, I just want to just invite us just to imagine what that may be like, you know, if we're never motivated by greed or aversion and we can respond to life without those filters. I said the teacher was talking about the filters. May we be, may we go away from this retreat with a few less filters. So we have those filters of wanting and not wanting, grasping and pushing away. And just to just take a moment, I just want to invite you to take a moment and settle into your body. And just imagine if one could live from a place where there isn't that agitation of wanting and not wanting. So we wouldn't turn into a, a lump of jello or anything like that. Still, there's still responsiveness, there's still intelligence, there's still wisdom, generosity, compassion, clarity. But we're not pushed around by wanting and not wanting.
so this, um, Dhammadina's husband goes off to listen to a Dhamma talk and comes back an Anagami, a non-returner. And he comes home and, and his wife is loving and tender and, and then he's like pushing her away. And, and she's saying, what's wrong? What's, what's happening? And he's saying, you know, I, I, can't, I can't do that stuff anymore. I can't uh, enjoy making love and I can't en enjoy delicious food anymore. It's, it's, I, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean anything to me anymore. So this is one of the things that can happen as one gets far on the path. And uh, and you know he's still loving and kind, and he wants to make it clear it's nothing. It's not her. She hasn't done anything wrong. There's nothing uh, nothing wrong with her. But his heart has changed, and the, the desires that were once there are no longer there. And so she wants to hear this great Buddha, and she also attends the teaching. I'm not sure how quickly her insight happens, but she goes to listen to the Buddha teaching. Um, well, actually, he he encourages her to ordain as a as a nun. So in India, in the Buddha's time, a woman was owned essentially was the kind of the property of a man, so to speak, or was under the care of a man. So it wasn't that you're a woman and you have your own life and you can do what you want. But you would be, you know, who you were married to would be a big deal. And and um, like yesterday, the story of, um, you know, Genta. thank you, Genta, who, who's who had all of these suitors, you know, who who would have been fighting over her, perhaps, and who, many of them would have been landowners and so on. The, the father decides you become a nun so that we don't have this problem. So that would be the father's decision, he could do that. Um, so Damodina's married and her husband is, is kind of basically a renunciant now. And so he says, you go and join the order of nuns. And, and she wanted to, she was, she was interested to do that. So she became a bhikkhuni and, uh, and she practiced very diligently and eventually with her very steady, diligent practice, she, uh, she was also completely free of wanting and not wanting. And then she carried on practicing and became fully enlightened, free of, free of even the tr faintest trace of delusion. So she became a fully awakened being. And, and she had been, she'd put herself in a situation where she could really practice very diligently where she wasn't distracted and, and uh, it was a kind of a retreat s space, you could say, in the forest with other bhikkhunis. And then once she was fully enlightened, she was, it was a little bit like, well, I don't really need to be here striving so hard now. And so she went back to her town, the town that she came from, and she went to see her husband, who was still a layman, lived at home, and she gave him a teaching a very profound teaching, and that's the teaching that has been passed down that you can find in the Majjhima Nikaya. It's a little kind of, it's, it's, it takes a bit of digesting the teaching, it's quite intense, it's quite detailed, 
and it's uh, it's pointing to uh, how we how what we hold on to as me and mine in in a very kind of detailed way. So how we create a sense of self, how we hold on to that, uh, how we construct it, and how we can let that go. So she she gives this teaching to her husband, and. Uh, So, I don't know, I find it interesting that these people, they, these are just like people, you know, married, living at home, having their life, and, and I guess there must be some karmic, um, some special karmic, uh, what do you say, the, the fact that they're alive at the time of the Buddha, you know, probably is, there's some pretty good karma there, but let's put it that way. So that will be part of the picture. But it's also, these are ordinary people. You know, they're not, it's not like these people have been doing deep meditation for a long time. But there's, so it points to this potential in each of us to awaken. That the truth is always here. The Dhamma is always here and now. It's always here and now. And then there are these, these veils of, of um, delusion and, uh, constructs that we create that that stop us from seeing the truth that is always here, and that's why we have these practices. You know, that's why we go on retreat. That's why we have daily practice and various different kinds of practices have evolved over the years from the Buddha's teaching. We do those practices not not just. I mean, partly we do become a better person. It's true. Most people will recognize that. We do become a better person through the practice, and that's a, a beautiful part of it. But the real purpose of the practice is to see through the constructs of the mind, to see through the delusions of the mind, and the, the stories that we tell ourselves, the, 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 the filters through which we perceive the world. You know, so... It can be very helpful to know our tendencies. We were speaking in our little group yesterday. You know, everyone has certain leanings. You know, I'm I'm more of a greed leaning. I like I'm more of a like wanting wanting. You know, more of a greed type, and 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 move towards sloth. So those are my leanings: greed and sloth. Not terribly inspiring. <laughs> but that's what that's my basic kind of. You know, that's the sort of baseline that I need to work with. Some people maybe uh, have a lot of fear and anxiety. And so that's then to know that there's a lot of fear and anxiety. And that's like a, a lot of the wind element. So things are, it's hard for things to settle and things get agitated very easily. And so if that's your tendency, just to feel your feet on the ground, touch the earth, you know, help yourself to settle and not to, not to believe every thought that goes through the mind. If you have a lot of aversion, you know, you're always pushing things away, wanting it to be a certain way and getting upset with people, it's not the way it should be. So then, you know, the tendency is to try and control everything out there so that you don't have to feel the aversion. But you can't control everything out there. So one has to turn back here and, and look at and be with the feeling, the unpleasant feeling of aversion inside, of not wanting. 
the greed types like mine, they you know, have to uh, reflect on the true nature of things. So, you know, delicious food, what happens to that food? You know, put something as they see, there's something wonderful on the table and it's on your plate and it's in it, on your fork and it's in your mouth. You know, there's that moment just before it gets into your mouth and it's in your mouth. And it's all of that time it's kind of beautiful and wonderful and delicious and for a few moments it's delicious on your tongue and then very quickly, like if I were to do that and then within about three, chew, three, three times chewing were to spit that food out, it's not going to be very appetizing. I wouldn't want to offer it to anyone else, you know. And then that's just after a few chews and then you swallow it, it gets mixed up with all of the acids and goes through this, the digestive system comes out not very attractive. So that for a greed type, that's the reflection, is to follow those attractive things all the way through to their unattractiveness, because everything has both. Not everything has both, but everything that's attractive ends up being not so great, if you follow it through. So that's the practice of the greed type. And then if you have a strong tendency to sloth and sleepiness, you know, that can be motivated by various things. It can be motiv- it's, a, it's a basic sort of delusion, not really wanting to be present, not being able to stay awake. And it can come from, uh, it can be based in aversion, I don't really want to be here, I don't want to have to deal with this. Or it can be based in desire, I want it to be more interesting, more stimulating, and it's not, it's not interesting enough. So uh, it's helpful to to know what one's leaning is in a very honest way, not and not in a personal way. In that, oh, I'm such a bad person. I'm so greedy, or I'm such a bad person. I'm so afraid. Or, you know, not like that, but just like, oh yeah, there's that leaning in that direction. There's a bit of an imbalance in that direction. So that needs to be cared for. So uh, as we do this work. It gives opportunity to see through the habits and the stories of the mind. And in a way, a person (laughs) is kind of a story. We kind of are are a story. My history, it's it's kind of fun for me to be with Lucy because we're both British. And all of these British things keep popping up about tea and tomato ketchup and those things. And it's like, oh yeah, there's this story of of Britishness, you know, that's that's got some, it's got some, something there, you know, it feels, it feels, uh, it's got a certain tangibleness, tangibility, and, but it's a story, you know, it's a story and a, and a patterning and a conditioning. So to, to recognize those stories, they are, you know, and listen, hear them, I don't mean listen to them as in follow them, but hear them, what are they saying, what are they telling you? There's one, a very common story is, is uh, there's something wrong with you, or you're not good enough, or um, if only you were like so-and-so, if only you could do this. You know, there's these stories of lack, and then they keep us perpetually trying to become the perfect person, trying to become whole. But as a personality, we can't, there isn't, there is no wholeness to a personality. It's it's uh, it is flawed. That is that is they're made that way. So in this samsara, in this realm of, of 
birth, aging and death. We look for perfection, but it's built in such a way that you will never find it. You'll never be able to settle into that, it, it, because it's, it's not there. The perfection is in the resting back into presence. Seeing clearly. So we need to, it's, it's kind of a subtle shift and a radical shift from trying to sort it all out to, and we do need to sort certain things out, you know, we need to keep good ethics and, uh, and we need to transform, we need to see and transform the habits of the mind that are, that are negative and critical and uh, resistant and those that are greedy and, and always striving on for something in the future. So somewhere in between those two is this beautiful, bright, clear place of abiding. So I want to read you the poems. It's just a one-verse poem. <coughs> so I've, I've got three different translations, two translations and a, two, one quite old translation. Maybe I'll read that first. So this is um, by uh, Rhys Davis and uh, K.R. Norman. And this is from, let's see what time that book was written. First published in 1909. In whom desire to reach the final rest is born, suffusing all the mind of her whose heart by lure of sense desire no more is held, bound upstream, so shall she be called. In whom desire to reach the final rest is born, suffusing all the mind of her, whose heart by lure of sense desire no more is held, bound upstream, so shall she be called. And uh, Halise. The kiss was uh, 2015. She who has given rise to the wish for freedom and is set on it shall be clear in mind. One whose heart is not caught in the pleasures of the senses, one who is bound upstream, will be freed. What's the name of the queen? Damadina. Medina um, and I'm aware, you know, I'm saying, I'm saying this to you all, and many, and there may be an ambivalence for you. You may be like, well, I'm not sure that I want to be free from desire. You know, desire is an important part of my life, and so that's something to to uh, get clear about. So uh, when we follow desire. It's an endless journey. So it's a little bit like that uh, image of the, I, was, I use the, uh, the image of a vortex, so I could want to say like a storm. If there's a big storm, a big circuit, a big kind of storm brewing, and if you're at the very edges of it, it's kind of like you, it's not too intense, but you just get pulled around and around and around. 
So that's kind of how it is when we just keep on, we keep, it, we keep our life in a certain kind of, well, this is nice, this is comfortable enough, and I want this, but I don't want that. Then it's like that. It's, not, it's kind of comfortable enough, it's not too difficult, but it's not too comfortable either, and we just keep going around and around. Sorry to say, folks, but that's how it is. We just keep going around and around. And, and if we want to stop that, if we want to do that, that's okay. You know, but, but be clear what you're doing. And if we want to stop that, then we need to go, we need to come into the center of our experience. We want to come right into the center of our experience and, and find that place of stillness. And there can be a wholesome, you know, we can, there's like wholesome desires, like the desire to benefit beings, the desire to liberate the mind. You know, there's, there's these desires that will actually lead, lead one to freedom. And there are even wholesome aversions. So feeling like, oh, I really wish I'd been practicing more fully. I haven't really been rising up to my full potential. That's, that's a wholesome negative feeling. So that, because that's a, a negative feeling that, that brings you closer to the path, it, it, it lifts you up. So those are the beneficial, pleasant and unpleasant feelings, Vedana. But as long as we're just following our desires and aversions, well, some of you know anyway, you know, some of you have been doing it long enough that you learn the hard way. <laughs> but uh, they can only fulfill us for a little while. So if, we, if we're motivated by um, love, generosity, compassion, wisdom, then those things can, can uh, nourish us and fulfill us for a long time and benefit others. But if it's about trying to get something from the world that will make us feel complete or happy, it's an endless search. So Damadina and her husband both uh, found freedom from that. Um, and I want to read, this is a very different poem but I find it quite brilliant. So this is uh, from The First Free Women, and it's uh, the reimagining of the poem with the backstory and so on of, of Dhammadina, she who has given herself to the Dhamma. I find this a very beautiful expression of right effort. For so long I thought only of the river's end. Then, one morning, I set my paddle down to watch the sun rise over the eastern hills, only to find myself floating somehow, gently upstream. I promise, it was not what I had expected. For so long, I thought only of the river's end. So this is her focus on Nibbana. I want to I want to find the way out. I want to find freedom. So she's very focused and she's very dedicated and, and that's how she was in her practice, just like giving herself to the practice. Then one morning I set my paddle down, this is just poetic imagery, to watch the sun rise over the eastern hills. 
So in the original, you know, there's no, there's no boat. She's not in a boat, but it's just this image of like, you know, you want, you want to get, you're trying to get to the end, you're trying to get to that ocean or down the river or whatever. You're trying to, you're, you're working really hard in your practice, and then, and then there's a, a stopping for a moment, and an opening, and just being with the rising sun, just being with what's happening only to find myself floating somehow, gently upstream. So in that, in that letting go, it's that combination of effort and, and letting go. And this is something that comes up again and again in the poems, of putting in the effort, having the focus, really dedicating oneself to the path and then relaxing a little bit. And in that that combination of the two, an awakening happens. So I hear scientists also speaking about this, that they'll, they'll be trying and trying, they'll be trying to figure out a problem, or mathematicians, they're trying to figure out a problem, working at it, working at it, working at it, and then there's a, a moment of relaxing, and then, ah, oh, there it, it comes. So it's this uh, interesting um, phenomena. So we can't do it. So this is the thing, you know, we can't do awakening, we can't make it happen, but if we don't put our effort in, it doesn't happen either. So it's kind of a both and. You've got to put the effort in, you've got to put the intention in, you've got to put the practice in, but you can't make the result happen. It happens through a certain letting go. In those last words, I promise it was not what I had expected. So that's interesting too, because I think as we um, as we practice, the the insights become more and more just like oh, it's just this, you know. This is about letting go, shedding the uh, the expectations and the the constructs, and then we just find ourselves seeing more clearly. It takes a certain amount of faith, of confidence, of, of conviction, or whatever trust. Of just just do the practice. You know, just do the practice anyway, even if you don't necessarily know where it's going to lead and what, how it's going to work. And uh, and the energy, the persistence, is is very very important. If we just do little patches here and there, we never really build up enough uh, momentum. So energy, the mindfulness is uh, essential, it's an essential component. Um, the wisdom to, you know, just to, wisdom is, is seeing things as they are, seeing the arising and passing away of things. And the collectedness of mind, so helping the mind to, sort of corolling the mind into, into collectedness, bringing reining it in. And this isn't a, this isn't a, a, a sharp, this isn't like a, a tight, it's not like having a tight rein on the mind, or a tight leash on the mind, it, but it's bringing it in, collecting it in, letting it, letting it stay with the breath or the, or the body, whatever your 
practicing with and, and keeping that practice going. So we have these long periods of time through the day to just to keep on um, shepherding the mind, bringing it in. And then there's the faith of t- that, that doing this does lead to greater clarity. Certainly, uh, I, you know, I know I, Sanchita and I are not fully enlightened or anything like that. But uh, having known it myself and I Sanchita for many years now, you see the, the practice changes you, things fall away. So, having the faith to keep on stepping into that. I want to offer that this morning. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.